Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. On this week's show, we're going to play a very important dialogue recorded this week at a public forum between Israeli historian and genocide studies scholar Omer Bartov and Alan Minsky, the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, about the Israel-Gaza crisis. In particular, the conversation focuses on the necessity of relaunching serious negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians to achieve a just, long-term political solution to the 75-year conflict in greater Israel-Palestine, and that activists and the left in general should foreground this demand immediately while the world's attention remains on Gaza. Bartov and Minsky then discuss a specific proposal for a political solution that Minsky heard Bartov advocate in a previous interview and which Minsky describes as a confederated state solution. Neither a one-state nor a two-state solution, but something in between. The proposal can be found on the website alandforall.org. All this when our program returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Omar Bartov was born and raised in Israel. He attended Tel Aviv University and St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and is currently the Samuel Pisar Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies in the History Department at Brown University. Bartov is the author of numerous books and studies. His latest is Genocide, the Holocaust, and Israel-Palestine, the First Person's History in Times of Crisis, published in August. Earlier this year, Bartov published his first novel, The Butterfly and the Axe. Professor Bartov came to prominence as a commentator on the current crisis when his essay, called What I Believe as a Historian of Genocide, was published by the New York Times on November 10th and went viral. His November 29th opinion piece in The Guardian, called A Political Stalemate Led to the Bloodshed in the Middle East, Only a Political Settlement Can Truly End It, was also read and commented upon across the world. Alan Minsky references The Guardian piece in the dialogue you're about to hear. Alan Minsky, who was actually my boss for a decade when he was the program director at KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. He has been the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America since autumn 2018. The next voice you hear will be Alan's. I am honored to welcome Omar Bartov to our town hall today. And Omar Bartov is a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. His most recent book is Genocide, the Holocaust in Israel-Palestine, First-Person History in Times of Crisis. Omar Bartov is so prolific that in 2023, he also published his first novel. It is called The Butterfly and the Axe. Omar Bartov was born in Israel and educated at Tel Aviv University and St. Anthony's College, Oxford. He is a history professor, again, at Brown University. And again, his focus is on the history of the Holocaust and genocide studies. So welcome to PDA's Town Hall, Omer Bartov. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really, really glad that you are with us today. And as sort of an opening prompt to your comments, I would like to talk to you about this Confederated State Solution. But the piece that was published in The Guardian that I understand you wrote, actually, it was adjusted from a piece you wrote for another outlet. You speak to where we are right now in terms of Israel, Gaza, and what can be done in terms of pressuring the forces that are at play there to pursue a broader and longer-term solution. And uh, can you just maybe explain to the audience what inspired the article and your thinking along those lines? Yeah, thank you. So, you know, what we are watching now, of course, is a very dynamic situation, things are changing on the ground all the time. So we are, whatever we say now may, may change, but I'd say what, what inspired me to write this was a sense that, uh, what happened on October 7th, um, destroyed, uh, the entire conception that existed in Israel for the previous 
many decades, at least two decades, uh, which were mostly dominated by governments um, under Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, and the conception was that the Palestinian issue could be managed. And by managed, it meant that uh, Israel could maintain a Hamas-led uh, Gaza Strip, and in fact had an interest in maintaining a Hamas-led Gaza Strip, uh, so as to be able to say that the leadership in Gaza is such that one cannot negotiate with it, and at the same time could maintain a separate uh, Israeli-controlled Palestinian authority in the West Bank, that it could say was too weak and too corrupt to reach any political settlement with either. And under those conditions, Israel could then, A, um, expand its settlements and lead toward some kind of annexation of the West Bank and make life as miserable as possible for the Palestinian population there in the hopes that they would leave. Um, and at the same time, it could improve its relations with the Ar other Arab countries around Israel, the most important countries, uh, because most of these countries don't really care about the Palestinians, uh, wanted to improve their relations with the United States, um, and were and are uh, quite afraid of such organizations as Hamas. Um, because these are authoritarian governments and Hamas, for better or for worse, um, um, represents uh, widespread popular sentiments in those countries. So this this was the situation until October 7th. And on October 7th, it, it blew up in the face of all those who believed that they could maintain it, not surprisingly, just before... Uh, an apparent agreement was about to be sealed between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And that was probably, we don't know for sure, but probably one of the main stimulants for that, for the timing of the attack. The attack itself had been planned for a long time, but when to launch it was probably the moment. So now the question is, where does this go? Mm -hmm. uh, and my sense was, when I was writing this, and it's increasing over the last few days, there are really two ways in which this can go. Uh, and I think that anyone who is an American citizen and who cares about this should should make sure by putting pressure on their own administration mm -hmm. uh, that it goes one way or not the other. Because the, the one way that I think the Israeli government is pushing for, because it does not want to agree to change the political paradigm that had existed before uh, October 7, is to use this as an opportunity to even improve its position by not merely launching a military operation, but launching a population policy, which under the guise of humanitarian actions, that is removal of population from areas in which uh, military operations are being conducted, it gradually moves the population into smaller and smaller areas of the Gaza Strip. In the course of military operations, it literally flattens those areas that it moves into. And that's a, an Israeli military strategy that was not invented after October 7th. It, it existed for quite a few years, but this is on a much larger scale, and then declares that there is a humanitarian crisis for the Palestinians and that the most uh, for the Gazans, and that the most humanitarian thing to do is to find them alternative housing, or rather, an alternative land. That is to empty the strip of its population. There's a lot of pressure within the Israeli government and the circles that support it. Uh, from settlers who have never come to terms with the fact that they were forced out of Gaza uh, 20 years ago and who would like to come back. 
Mm. Um, that, of course, will then make things much easier also in the West Bank, where there is right now ongoing violence, most of it under the radar, not very well reported. But over 200 Palestinians have been killed already since uh, October 7th. Uh, a number of communities have been evacuated under the threat of force, uh, and people are terrified there that they are also viewing a second Nakba. Uh, and I should say that a number of military, of uh, political leaders in Israel have spoken about the fact that what's going to happen in Gaza is a second Nakba. That is, and that's an illusion. It's a bit ironic because uh, these are the same people who deny that there was a Nakba in 1948, uh, that is an expulsion of 750,000 Palestinians in 1948 from what was then mandatory Palestine, the same people who deny that it happened there say, well, but there's going to be a second one right now. So that's, now that would also have major repercussions for the nature of the state of Israel itself. I, I'm an Israeli. I was born in Israel. I was raised in Israel. I have many friends in Israel, family in Israel. I care about that country. I go there a lot. Uh, but the country would change uh, dramatically under these circumstances. Internally, it would change. And it would become, you were talking earlier about a secular state. Mm-hmm. It would lose any semblance of a secular state. It would become mm-hmm. an authoritarian, messianic, um, autocracy, um, and one uh, from which more progressive people would probably want to leave. And it's already happening to an extent, even mm. in Israeli universities, certainly in the media. I mean, there are many, many signs of this already in progress. So this is the one scenario. Mm-hmm. Can I ask one question to clarify? What's your thinking as to why the sort of flattening of Gaza, the pressuring out of the Palestinians, that strategy pursued by the Israeli government, the reactionary forces in Israel, the military, etc. Why would that lead to an even greater move to the right, as it were, desecularization of Israel than if that weren't the case? Because my understanding is there's some demographic forces in Israel that are moving things in that direction already. But just your thinking on that to clarify that point. Yeah, first of all, I mean, there, there are demographic forces. I'm, I'm as a historian of the 20th century, I, 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 um, I'm not comfortable with demographic arguments. They've sure. often been, been used yeah. for the wrong reasons. You sure. never know how the children of particular sure. people will, what right. will become of them. And you cannot expect right. that they would be like their parents necessarily. So, you know, right. yeah, it, it's true. I mean, and the ultra-religious are having many children in Israel, but this argument was used by the Labour Party in the 1980s um, and, and, and 70s to say the main demographic problem was that the Arabs were multiplying too fast. Um, and this was by the Israeli left or the sort of establishment left of the time. So, but why, why would that change though the internal dynamics? So leave it, leave aside. So, yes. Because these uh, policies that would be pursued by the kinds of people who are in power now in Israel, Mm -hmm. if they succeed in doing it, it would, um, uh, show that they were right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and their own goal. In, which was before October 7th, the entire judicial overhaul, so-called, which began in February, uh, was about changing the nature of Israeli democracy, was about diminishing mm. the power of the, mm. of the Supreme Court, which is the only bulwark that's still defending democracy in Israel for the Jews, because there is no democracy, uh, democracy for non-Jews. Uh, that would um, um, perpetuate their power um, and that's what they have in mind. This is their plan. So if they succeed in doing it, they will make Israel into what some people are saying now, a more Spartan society. Now, I don't know that they will succeed. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that they can succeed, but uh, one ought to try and make it as difficult as possible for them to succeed. And the only power that can do that right now is not internal, but external. Mm. By the way, I just placed into the chat the article from The Guardian that speaks on these subjects. And very correctly, Professor Bartoff notes that something that right now that was published only a few days ago, history is moving so rapidly, as it were, with events on the ground. Obviously, the restart, the end of the ceasefire was a, was a devastating day. 
yesterday and continues on today. Okay, so the other path is towards negotiations. And actually, I can see a logic by which if you do have Israel brought back to the table and the world is looking upon the process, looking for an equitable solution, that could lead to staunching the the advance of the right within Israel, but one never knows. But the negotiations, it does seem that the window for demanding this may shut pretty quickly. Because it strikes me right now, some of the very countries that were negotiating with Israel to normalize relations, that have never had normalized relationships with Israel before, though there have been a lot of backdoor channels, powerful countries like Saudi Arabia, right now would probably go along with demanding negotiations. Fast forward two years, some, again, incredibly unjust status quo is reestablished in Israel-Palestine. One can see the Saudis just brushing it off and not considering it. So it seems like it really is a moment where we should be pursuing what you outline in the article. And so the other path, how, how would you hope maybe that this other path could be pursued? So the other path is a change of the paradigm. Uh, and the change of the paradigm has to actually succeed uh, with removing some of the political forces that are now determining what we are seeing. Uh, and those are two in large part, and in many ways they are mirror images of each other. One is Hamas. Hamas is not a group, despite its very different origins, it has become a group that is no longer credible for any kind of negotiations, that has been entirely discredited, not only for the Israeli public, but I think for many others, uh, following the, the atrocities of October 7th that have touched almost every Israeli, I mean, including myself, I mean, everyone that I know uh, has people who were killed there or kidnapped or in other ways affected. Um, and it has largely stuck despite its sort of revised uh, charter, which is not really a revision of the charter, but just in addition to it, it is generally stuck to the idea that what he wants to accomplish is an Islamic Palestinian state over the entire land of Palestine. Um, and it doesn't really say what's going to happen to the 7 million Jews who live there. Uh, and we have to keep in mind the whole time that right now, under areas, under one kind of Israeli control or another, live 7 million Jews and 7 million Palestinians. Uh, and the democracy in that, uh, only democracy in the Middle East, is only for Jews. Uh, even the two million Palestinians who are citizens of Israel are second-class citizens on a whole variety of issues. So in order to change the paradigm, uh, as I said, Hamas uh, would have to be removed, but it, it, it cannot be removed the way that Israel is trying to remove it, just with bombs. That's not the way to remove it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, it would be entrenched rather than removed. The second element that has to be removed is the current Israeli government. The current Israeli government, as I said before, has no interest in changing the paradigm. It is dependent on that paradigm. It is hoping, and in fact, some of its people are saying that this is an opportunity for them now to finally implement what they've always wanted to do, to do it quickly and violently. Now, if that could be accomplished, that is, if Hamas could be removed as the hegemon of Gaza, not as an organization, it will not disappear, but as the power broker of Gaza. And if there were a change in the government in Israel, which is hardly impossible, and I'm not talking about a left-wing government in Israel, that's not the point, because there aren't any, uh, hardly any leftists left in, in uh, Israel, but a more reasonable and less dogmatic government that is not controlled by the settlers, then you are talking about a major change in the situation. And let me just quickly outline what I mean. Mm-hmm. The first thing that would have to happen, and, and I have to say that part of this has only recently been stated by Blinken. So uh, there, there are elements in this that the U.S. government would support. It's just uh, not pushing very hard for mm-hmm. it. So that's the problem. Not that they don't see the sort of goal. So the first thing that would have to happen 
is once Hamas as the power broker leaves, maybe the way Arafat left Beirut uh, all those years ago, uh, then there would have to be an international presence in Gaza, a temporary international presence, preferably uh, of Arab soldiers. They could be from those countries that are interested in this. It could be Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia. It could also be Turkey uh, and or from UN presence. Definitely no American presence. That would be a very bad idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be a temporary presence. And obviously there would have to be enormous investment in rebuilding what the IDF right now is leveling uh, in order to make life possible there. Uh, all of this under a roof understanding that the goal to, towards which both Israel and the Palestinians are moving is another way of sharing that land in a just and equal manner. So, so that w- has to be a general understanding of that. The second phase would be that the Palestinian Authority which is now not only weak, but also corrupt and extremely unpopular uh, Mm -hmm. in the West Bank, which means that Hamas is getting more popular there, would have to be revamped, would have to have a new leadership. There is such a leadership, but it's in Israeli jails. Uh, And those people would actually have to be released from jail and to provide an alternative leadership, which would be the same leadership, both for the West Bank and for Gaza. That's what Israel had not wanted to see for a long time. It's much more convenient to divide and rule. I mean, actually, you probably can do this very eloquently and succinctly, even among people who are almost like lifelong activists on the subject. I have heard people say very contradictory things about what kind of state Palestinians have or don't have currently that they live under. And I think there's also some confusion in the general public between the Palestinian Authority as Fatah, a political party, and as what was supposedly designated as the embryonic Palestinian state. So there's Gaza, there's the West Bank, and let's maybe just, to keep it simple, keep Jerusalem out of it for the moment. But Gaza and the West Bank, what government is in charge of those? And what is the name of that? And is it called the Palestinian Authority, or is it called something different? So the 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 Palestinian Authority was created um, during the Oslo Accords, mm-hmm. and the area in the Oslo Accords was divided into three parts to area A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the area is controlled directly by the Palestinian Authority. That's the area where there are the largest concentrations of Palestinians, where Palestinian cities are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second area is sort of an in-between area, mm-hmm. uh, and the third area is mostly under hypothetically under Israeli control. Uh, And this was supposed to be a completely temporary arrangement that that I think was supposed to last five years. And it's been many, many years since. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this was not seen as a permanent arrangement. What in fact has happened is that the Palestinian Authority uh, has no control over anything apart from what the Israelis want them to control, yeah. which is internal order, you know, sewage, uh, medical services, all of that. It's it's working as a, a, a broker for the Israeli authorities. Israeli security forces can go at will into any parts of these areas and do whatever they like. There's no limit on them whatsoever. They can, if they want, inform the Palestinian Authority that they're about to do it. And the Palestinian um, uh, security forces are working most of the time for the Israelis. The Israelis give them information. We we want you to arrest these guys. These are Hamas. They go and do it. If they don't do it, then the Israelis go in. So the idea that there is a Palestinian state is um, was 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 created really as a facade, uh, so that it's much easier for Israel to control the whole area. And in fact, only recently, there were debates over that because the current uh, Minister of Finance, Smotrich, who is a, who is a very extreme right-wing settler, uh, was refusing 
to um, hand over funds to the Palestinian Authority, which are not his funds. These are funds that were collected as taxes from Palestinians, go to the Israeli Treasury, and are supposed to then be handed back to the Palestinian Authority. He did not want to do it and was persuaded by the army that was saying, look, we need them to get the money because that money pays for them to police themselves so that we don't have to do it. They're doing it for us. So you can, this is very similar to a colonial situation. If you think, uh, say, the British in India before mm-hmm. World mm-hmm. War One had a very mm-hmm. small force there. They had something like 20,000 army uh, in that entire subcontinent because most of the job was done by the locals. That's how you rule in a colonial situation. Uh, but Israel can use that and has used it by saying, well, I mean, we gave them a state. Despite mm-hmm. the fact that now, if you fly a Palestinian flag, which is if a formal flag that Israel had recognized on campus at Tel Aviv University, you might be removed from the university because mm-hmm. the police does not allow it. So it is a fiction that has served Israel very well. And there are thoughts in the Israeli government now, you, you can sort of read a lot between the lines, to do the same in Gaza. That is to have a Palestinian authority in Gaza that would be just like in the West Bank so that you don't have to patrol the streets there. The people who do it are Palestinian policemen. That's mm-hmm. their income. Most of the people who get some income in the West Bank are getting it for, by working for the Palestinian Authority. Um, and so they have an interest in doing it. Uh, but they're actually maintaining uh, the this status quo of overall um, control by the Israeli state. So I want to return to the question of on the pathway to negotiations. What you described in terms of obviously having a benign sort of police occupying force made up of countries other than Israel and the United States being Gaza to help with the rebuilding of Gaza. The one question I have about that, though, is is Palestinian self-determination in, in that process. Would that just default to the UN to oversee that? Or what role would the Palestinian people have? Because, again, in terms of getting towards negotiation, you would want to have, and of course, like to have a balance of self-determination for the two groups of the 7 million people. Yeah, so as I said, I mean, all of this has to be done mm-hmm. uh, under a a prior understanding uh, mm-hmm. even if the details still have to be worked out, mm-hmm. that at the end of this process, there would be a Palestinian state and there would be a Jewish state. And that this, these are transitional steps from one to the other. Uh, and I should say that the only way, because we I, I talked about Hamas before, the only way to weaken organizations such as Hamas, which none of us would like to, I don't think any of us would like to have in our own neighborhood. Uh, the only way to weaken them is to provide people with hope, is to mm-hmm. provide people with an idea that uh, in a year or two from now, things are going to be better for them, for their children, for their education, for their job prospects, and so forth. But ultimately, it's not only about a better life, it's also about actual dignity for the people mm-hmm. living there, and an idea that they would ultimately have a state of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that has to be there, and there has to be, at the end of the process, absolutely Palestinian self-determination, which has already been recognized, of course, by the UN, but has to be implemented right. in an right. actual political entity. I only have about two more questions. So... I want to focus a little bit now on domestic United States. That'll be the one question. And the second will be about, again, what you presented on Democracy Now! November 10th, this idea of, you just spoke about two states, but again, you had spoken about a sort of confederated one-state, two-state hybrid. I found that very likely to be the type of thing that could work in almost in a vacuum, in a perfect world, because the way we would all want it to be, but not easy to get to. But anyway, for the domestic consideration, pressuring the Biden administration to demand negotiations of the type that you're talking about. And as you noted, yes, the Biden administration, first of all, they've come out and said a two-state solution. Yesterday, I think Kamala Harris said, absolutely, under no circumstances will we tolerate the movement out of the Palestinian people from Gaza, right? So there's some statements being made 
since that was a relatively new thing that Harris said with that force, there was some good force behind that. There hasn't been a lot of force behind the demand for new negotiations. It's been said, and it hasn't really been front and center. They're, they're obviously busy with the death and destruction, and they're also busy selling weapons to Israel. They're busy giving Israel too much of a carte blanche. But how best do you think in, and of course you're familiar with domestic American politics, do you think an organization like PDA, our allies in the progressive left, can make a demand and have it be impactful as a demand that negotiations be a part of this process from this point forward in terms of this crisis? And to be pressure on the Israeli government, first and foremost, from the Biden administration. I say first, I think that you probably know that better than I do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm not a political organizer in the United States. I, that's that's, that's not what I specialize in. <laughs> All I would say are two things, I think. One is to think clearly what is the most effective pressure that the United States can put on Israel. And the most effective pressure by the U.S. on Israel is not money, it's arms. Uh, the United mm. States can change Israeli policy uh, on the drop of a dime. Uh, the Israeli public is extremely sensitive to what American politicians say, uh, far more than is reported here. People are terrified of that. So they can have all kind of bravado as they did before October 7th when uh, there was some criticism in America of the judicial overhaul and some ministers in Israel were saying the Americans should mind their own business. So this is our internal affair. And then the moment the war began, an aerial train started going from the U.S. to Israel, bringing more and more rockets because this Iron Dome needs rockets. It doesn't you have to get these rockets from someplace. Israel cannot produce them fast enough. Uh, so the U.S. can have a huge impact by uh, minor adjustments to its policy. You don't need BDS. You need simply uh, to uh, talk, not even to act, but just to talk. If If you don't listen to us, we'll have to limit our supplies. We're running out of supplies. We'll have to limit them. That's that's one thing that I think people really need to understand, and I don't know that people understand that too well. The second and probably the more important thing is that when you put pressure on the U.S., on your representatives or however you go about it, I think it has to be realistic. And I think it has to have a sort of um, um, a, a, a longer political horizon. Yeah. Uh, if people just go out and demonstrate for a ceasefire, yes, we all want a ceasefire. We want to see an end to the killing. But a ceasefire won't change anything. Uh -huh. It'll stop the killing for a while, and then the killing will continue, and the oppression will continue, and the occupation will continue. And people will feel, well, but we accomplished something. We accomplished a ceasefire, and you've accomplished nothing. Uh, in fact, you are, you're walking backward. So one has to have a larger vision and to try to impart that also to American politicians who often don't know much about what's going on there. They, they have a lot of other things on their minds, much more important, such as getting elected. Uh, right. And so you have to provide them with some kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. And if they have that and they have some talking point, points that make sense, uh, they don't seem like, okay, you are telling me just to, uh, uh, you know, be uh, weak on Hamas or, 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 or you're giving up uh, on Israel. No, you are providing them with a plan as to how things can be better for everyone there, very much for Israelis and for Palestinians. If, if you can provide that in a, in a gist, in a way that is digestible, uh, for politicians and can go in the media and speak that out, that I think can eventually make a difference. Well, I think actually one of the, there's very little that's been good about the last two months, of course. But one thing that I think is very promising is that the organizations in the United States that are focused on uh, peace and uh, positive resolution, Israel-Palestine, are both uh, more prominent and also considerably better funded even in the last two months, from, from CARE to JVP 
probably even to some of the more liberal centrist ones that are not where Netanyahu is. They're not APAC. Now, I'm sure APAC has more money than it ever had before. And if there was a lot of time, I'd ask you about APAC, but that's another thing in American politics. My job, not yours, right? Our job here at PDA. So, okay, that's domestics. Now on to this idea of a confederated state solution. Maybe I should just say why I found it so compelling. Again, as I as I said right before this dialogue, if you're listening on the podcast, I mentioned that uh, you know I'm a big believer in left universalism, secular states, etc. By the way, the United States of America, which I know is is very not fashionable in left circles to praise the founding generation of the United States of America right now. But uh, I think we can see actually one of the great advances that was made by the establishment of the United States and its constitution was the fact that this was going to be a country that was not going to be attached to any one religion. Okay, we can see how significant that can be in the reality of people's lives. So, but that's not the case in Israel and Palestine. And we have 7 million people, roughly Palestinians, within the territory, 7 million Jews. Israel's not going to go away. Palestinians are not going to go away. And I thought that a two-state solution, just a naked two-state solution, strikes me as, as almost implying a kind of detente situation, intention. A confederated state solution would create, it could be a very thin layer of connection between the two governments, but maybe thicker when it comes to sharing rule over Jerusalem, for instance. I like what you said about the citizenship status of Palestinians who live in Israel and Israelis who live in Palestine. But obviously, there's all sorts of complications that go into thinking about this. But the one thing I also think people have to realize is if Israel is going to exist and there's going to be a majority Israeli Jewish state, my sense is there's no way in hell they will ever negotiate away their military or what comes with having a modern state that within the confines of the modern state, the state grants itself a monopoly on quote unquote legitimate violence, right? There's no way that's ever going to be shared in any way, shape or form. And so you would have basically a state like California state, a province, a state like California state, like Palestine, but they would be much more independent than the states in the United States are. They would have their own police and military forces, but then there would also be this shared um, governmental structure. Is that roughly what you guys are are proposing? So, yeah. So let me say first, uh, this whole uh, idea is not my invention. I'm, 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 I joined a group that thought it up before I did. Um, and initially I was quite skeptical and I've become increasingly more convinced. So it's, it's called a land for all. And if you Google that, you will find some documents in, uh, in English and Hebrew and in Arabic, uh, under the title, a land for all. Um, there are several principles there that are the most important. But before that, I would say, you know, I and many people that I know uh, for many, many years of going back to the, to when I was a teenager, uh, before the war of 73, uh, uh, opposed the occupation and believed that the only solution to the conflict at the time, uh, was a, a two state solution, uh, and believed that those territories that were captured by Israel in 67 would be the territories in which then a Palestinian state could be established. Now, many years later, you have to say, under uh, many uh, Israeli governments, including many so-called left-wing governments, uh, that kept saying, yes, we are thinking of a two-state solution, uh, the settlement project made that impossible. So that by now you have between 500,000 and 750,000 settlers, depending how you count, uh, in the West Bank, uh, along with 3 million Palestinians in the West Bank. Removing those settlers from the West Bank uh, would probably mean civil war in Israel. Uh, there's no clear mechanism how that could be done. Beyond that, 
It's not simply that there are settlers there, but the West Bank now has been cut up in such a way that there's hardly any continuity between different uh, Palestinian communities. Uh, the infrastructure of the West Bank, uh, the road system, sanitation, electricity, all of that is completely now integrated with the Israeli system. So you could say the two-state solution is dead. And all those governments that were working toward it accomplished what they wanted. But of course, they ended up also with something that is entirely opposed to what Zionism was about. Zionism wanted to create a Jewish majority state. This was the goal of Zionism. This goes back to the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. And what was created after all these efforts and all the bloodshed and, and all the oppression is an area in which 50% of the population is Palestinian and 50% are Jews. The Jews are the privileged group and the Palestinians are oppressed in one way or another. And so the question is, how do you square this circle? And here two principles I think are important to keep in mind. One is that both groups, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, have the right of self-determination. That is a fundamental right uh, that both groups have. Um, and and that flies in, in, in the face, in fact, of the idea of a binational state. Uh, these are two groups that, f- for whom, uh, for historical reasons, uh, the idea of self-determination is crucial. They want to have a state of their own. They don't mm-hmm. want to share a state with another group. Right. Uh, now, that may change over time, as they did in Europe. Right. Uh, but at the moment, they want that. Okay. And the second principle is, and that principle is uh, law only in one of those countries, is the law of return. Uh, for, for Zionism, for Israel, the law of return is a fundamental law. That is, the whole concept of Zionism was that Israel could be a haven to Jews. Now, you could say that right now, the least safe place for Jews in the world is the state of Israel, but that's, that's not what we're talking about now. Um, mm-hmm. but that any Jew who wanted to become an Israeli citizen would be able to come. And that's, of course, a legacy of, uh, World War II of the fact that the Jews had no place to escape to and were trapped in Europe and murdered. The Palestinians, uh, who are a people, uh, much of whose population are refugees and are refugees as a result of Israeli policies that push them out, insist on the right of return. And you cannot take that away from them. Um, that, that, that would be a major stumbling block in any kind of creation of uh, of negotiations between uh, Jews and Palestinians uh, over that land. If you keep these two um, uh, principles in mind, uh, how do you then, and, and the reality on the ground of so many Jewish settlers in the West Bank and so many mixed populations everywhere, also in Israel itself, uh, many of the two million Palestinians who live in Israel live in mixed towns. They live side by side with Jews. So what what do you do? And this idea is, as you were briefly describing it, the idea is that there would be two states. These two states would be along the 1967 uh, lines unless they decide to change them a little bit for one reason or another. Those two states would, would be um, sovereign states. They'd have full sovereignty and they'd have the right of return. Mm-hmm. However, there would be a difference in those states between the category of being a citizen and the category of being a resident. And that would mean that Jews living in a Palestinian state, if they accepted its laws and regulations, and if they didn't go out uh, in the middle of the day to uproot olive trees or to burn down homes, if they follow the law, would be allowed to live in that state as residents but they would vote as citizens in the other state. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with Palestinians. Palestinians could go, and I'm not talking about Palestinians who are Israeli citizens, who obviously would retain their citizenship, but Palestinians who would want to go to, to live in Haifa. They, say, live in Nablus, and they they 
found a good job in Haifa or they have a girlfriend in Haifa, whatever mm-hmm. it is, yeah. and right. they want to live there. They could live there, uh, but they would not be citizens. They they would apply for uh, residence uh, permits as a French person who wants to live in Germany does. Uh, right. And then they could live there, but they would vote for a Palestinian parliament. Mm-hmm. As for the right of return, obviously, if four or five million uh, Palestinian refugees wanted to return, uh, it would probably be impossible for the the state of Israel to have all of them come even as residents. So there would have to be all kinds of agreements that would limit the number of people who could come at any particular time, but not limited on principle, limited as, say, Germany would not allow hundreds of thousands of French people to move to Berlin. Uh, Jerusalem would be the capital of both states. And although people argue that Jerusalem is the main stumbling block, it doesn't appear really to be that. It is a mixed city already. It has been for a long time. It's a very divided mixed city, mm-hmm. obviously. But it is a city that could easily accommodate the both the um, um, state authorities of both countries, that is a Palestinian parliament and Israeli parliament and so forth, and then you would have a roof organization, which would be of the federal system. Mm-hmm. That authority would take care of everything that is actually, um, that overlaps in these two countries. It would take care of the borders. It would take care of all the infrastructure. It would take care of everything where actually dividing the two states uh, completely would be almost impossible. Uh, so it would be in charge of all those connections between the two entities. Uh, and there would have to be an agreement that would have to do, as you said, with uh, military force, with who has the monopoly of power and how is that distributed. Mm. That, I think, obviously would be difficult, but I don't think it would be impossible to the extent that if you could identify uh, the difference between an external border, which would be the border of the entire Confederate system, and an internal border, which would be the much less hard border between one state and another, between Palestine and Israel, you could have, as Israel has now, uh, thousands of armed Palestinians who are, in fact, now working for the Israeli state, um, and then would be working for the Palestinian state, under the control of this roof government, which would be 100% shared by Palestinians and Israelis. You know, I'm the son of an economist, and my mind instantly goes towards the way in which, of course, I do feel that economic reparations are owed tremendously to the Palestinians, that Israel, I mean, one of the reasons, no doubt, the Saudis are so covetous of maybe normalizing relationships with Israel is, of course, it's a prosperous modern technological society, which hasn't been reliant upon fossil fuels, which uh, rumor has it, though apparently it hasn't reached the people at the COP, is something that people are trying to work away from right now, uh, using fossil fuels as a source of all the wealth of the Gulf states. So they're covetous of connecting up with Israelis. But for me, one of the things that was so compelling about this is, again, with the confederated structure could really facilitate uh, the development, which I think would be popular. I don't know. I I'm on the political left. I can't always say how elections or political trends are going to go. I can. I have a sense of it, a very strong sense, but I've oftentimes been not correct. But I do believe a, a prosperous, technological, industrialized, fully fit with infrastructure Palestine would be very appealing to the Palestinian polity. And I do think there's a lot of wealth in Israel that could contribute to reparations to the Palestinians that could be more facilitated through. Now, I don't know if there's the appetite for that on the Israeli side but I wish there were. Look, I mean, I think not only that, first of all, there would be uh, a lot of investment, but I think there would be a lot of external investment. Yeah. Remember, uh, during the early years of the Oslo Accords in the early 1990s, if you think about Gaza and what is going on there now and what was happening then, not only was Hamas much weaker because people had hope, but there were major plans. An airport was built, in fact, an international airport, uh, there were ma- major plans for a major seaport, for connections not only between the Gaza 
Strip and the West Bank, but also toward Jordan and to the Dead Sea. So the idea of creating a prosperous Gaza uh, that that would be, as people spoke about it at the time, the Hong Kong or the Dubai of the Middle East, uh, is is not fantasy. And I think that under the right conditions, there would be a huge amount of money uh, from everywhere to invest in that. Um, but of course, you have to change the, as I say, you have for that, you have to change the political paradigm. This sounds now like a pipe dream. Right. And it well, is, in a sense, is, a pipe dream. Yeah, I agree. It is. But mm-hmm. first of all, it's good to have a pipe dream because if you don't have it, then you're only thinking about right. blood and soil. That's, that's the only thing you're preoccupied with, how many people you kill. And secondly, it's not simply a pipe dream. It can also be a blueprint. And if it's a blueprint, if you think about it in ways, as I said before, that you can talk to your representatives, that you can talk about to Israelis and Palestinians, that you can say you can actually think outside of this sort of faithful, um, uh, deterministic thinking that we have to keep fighting each other because we will never be able to live together. And when you know, I spent uh, several months in uh, Israel in the fall of uh, ni- of 2022, and I talked with a lot of Palestinians in Israel. the The amount of integration that there is, with all the 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 horrible things that have been going on, the amount of integration between uh, Palestinians in Israel and Jews in Israel is enormous. You know that if Palestinians uh, decided to go on a strike as Palestinians in Israel, the health services would collapse. Mm-hmm. The majority of people working now in health, in pharmacies, as doctors, as nurses, are Palestinian. Uh, so it's not a, an impossibility to think that those two groups can actually live together. They have culturally far more in common than people think. Israel has become a much more orientalized country, Hannah Arendt at the time thought it was terrible that, you know, it would be Oriental. But Israel has a vast number of people who come from Arab countries, whose parents spoke Arabic or grandparents as their first language. Uh, there is a, much more in common than people think, uh, but the politicians, in fact, on both sides, have been always trying to divide between them. And if you give people some horizon of hope with a true political vision, you may sway more people than you right now believe in. But you have to get rid of these, uh, you know, uh, people like the, the national religious in Israel and people like Hamas and open a space for a completely different discourse. Well, Professor Bartov, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And thank you to all the people who participated in this. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. <laughs>